Wasn't that fantastic? I love singing. Welcome to Summer Shorts. We want this time to be an encouraging and a challenging and a motivating time for you in your Christian walk for the rest of this week. So in that vein, I have a short story to tell you. Three contractors were touring the White House on the same day. One was from New York, one was from Florida, and one was from Missouri. At the end of the tour, the guard asked them what they did for a living, and when they each replied that they were contractors, he said, well, you know, we need one of the rear fences. Why don't you guys take me? Well, first the Florida contractor got out his tape, went over there, kind of looked at it, did some measurements, got out his pencil, and he said, well... After I figure it, the job's going to run you $900, $400 for the materials, and $400 for my crew, and $100 profit for me. Well, then the Missouri contractor looked at it. He got out his measuring tape. He got out his pencil, started doing some figuring, measuring some things. He did some calculations and said, look, looks like I can do this job for about $700, $300 for the materials, $300 for my crew, and $100 profit for me. Well, finally, the guard asked the guy from New York State for his bid, and without batting an eye, the contractor said $2,700. Whoa, the guard's incredulous. You didn't even measure or do anything. He just gave me that high figure. Well, easy, said the contractor from New York. It goes like this. $1,000 for me, $1,000 for you, and we hire the guy from Missouri. I thought you'd like that one. I laughed and laughed at that one. Barry heard me, but he didn't say anything. Tonight, we welcome back Dr. Jim Baird from Oklahoma Christian University. And we appreciate Dr. Baird. He's one of our favorite speakers. We've had him before for our Insight Seminar, but we've never had him in the summer. So I invited him to come down this summer and speak. Uh, He has his undergraduate degree from OC. He has an MDiv from Harding University, and he has a doctoral degree from Oxford. He's married to Yodi. They have three children. And tonight he's going to talk about the workers. Ah, the magic wand. Yeah, let's hope it works. Okay, I was given instructions. Did that work? It is simple. You were not lying to me. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Hey, it really is good to be back at uh, MacArthur Park. I'm going to... If I don't need that, then I'm going to move that out of my way. Is that okay? How about if I move it out of your way? Yeah. You're going to have to pull it way back up, tall guy. You know, I was standing on this platform, and he was standing on the ground. And we were about eye level. (laughs) It was... It was a great feeling just for a moment. Uh, Actually, when I was a kid, I was small. I mean, I'm short still, but I was small as well. And as a result of that, I was usually picked last. Anybody, has anybody, will you guys confess this? Who has been picked last? It's a barbaric custom, picking teams. Who has been, okay, a few people have had the same experience. I was a little kid. I was also not very athletic. I was kind of a nerd. And so, pick last. I don't mean pick last of the boys. 
We had some giant girls at Orpheus Reisner Elementary. I mean, pick last. Pick, it was sort of like, okay, and I'll take Jim. You know, it was, uh, how does that feel when you're picked last? Not good. Our parable tonight is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and it hinges on the guys who were picked last. That's really what it's about, the guys who were picked last. It's a really weird story. You know it pretty well, um, the story that we have, the workers in the vineyard. Uh, it is imagining a situation that happens today sometimes, although uh, not that often, but uh, in places where there's picking or uh, day laboring going on, you will have people standing out hoping to get chosen to work. That happens today. And that happened 2,000 years ago. People in the center of town hoping somebody will come along with a little work to do uh, so that they can feed their family for the day, so that they can have nourishment for the day. And they can take care of their basic needs for the day. And that's the situation here. You have a landowner, he's got a vineyard, he wants to have to hire workers. Uh, in the ancient world, you know this part of the story probably, in the ancient world they didn't really have 24 hours in a day. They had 12 hours of daylight. It didn't matter if it was short or long, they just divided it up into 12 hours. However, and so the hours were a variable length. Nobody has watches anyway. So, uh, and they would do that. When the sun comes up, that's the beginning of the first hour. And then you've got second and third hour and fourth hour. And sixth hour is noon. Whenever the sun is overhead, we're trying to hit about the sixth hour. And then seventh hour and eighth hour and ninth hour and tenth hour and eleventh hour. And when the sun is going down, you're trying to finish up the twelfth hour. That's how they did it. For nighttime, they didn't use hours. Usually the Romans did sometimes. But mostly they just did watches. There are four watches, and it's the same thing. You have a long night, you still just have four watches. They're just a little longer, each one. You have a short night, they're a little shorter. You just compact them a little bit. So here we are on this day. You've got a group of workers who would like to be able to feed their families, like to be able to feed themselves. They're standing around. A rich man comes and, and hires a group. Come, son has just come up. Come work for me. Come work for me in my vineyard. And he goes back about 9 o'clock the third hour, nine o'clock, and, and there's more people still there. He says, you didn't get hired? Come work for me. And so he puts them to work. And then about noon, and then about three, and then about five o'clock in the afternoon. Now, that's not five o'clock by our clock. That is an hour of daylight left. What would that be today? Yeah, eight, right? So eight. And then he goes to the marketplace. There are still people. And he says, did nobody hire you? No. We've been hoping all day, We're, and, and nobody picked us. I mean, everybody else looked better than us to the people that came to select. We're the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And he said, well, okay, fine. Uh, come and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you what's right. All the others, he'd kind of name the wage he would give them, but here he says, I'll pay you what's right. So they come, and they work for an hour, and the sun goes down, and everybody gathers around, and he's going to dole out the money. And, he, and these last ones that he picked, he pays them a full day's wage. A denarius is enough money, uh, according to our sources, enough money to keep a family alive for a day. 
You could buy basic bread for that day. And so the people who'd worked all day long said, he's changing the contract. We're going to get rich today. It's going to be great. And then he goes and proceeds to pay everybody a day's wage, a denarius, a, a, a living wage for one day. And the people who had worked all day long, I think they have a legitimate gripe, right? Because they say, how have you made them equal with us? We worked through the heat of the day. We have borne the heat of the day. How do you make these people who worked one hour equal with our work? And the landowner's answer is really interesting. He says, I've done you no wrong. Did you agree to work for me for a day's wage? Then here's your day's wage. And why would you be envious if I am generous? And the kicker, which actually is what links this into what's going on in this section of Matthew, the kicker is, and so, the first will be last and the last shall be first. Okay, that's our parable. That's that's what the parable says. And it is a weird parable. It would actually wreck the economy if we tried to put this into practice, right? This would be a mess. Uh, Nobody would work. It would be, everybody would hide until 5 o'clock in the afternoon and then pop out and say, pick me. Uh, and, And so this would be a terrible idea. And it's not meant as an economic model. It's meant as something much, much deeper. Uh, But it is weird even for that deep message. We actually have parallel parallel parables in both Judaism and Islam. Now, we're not sure about the Jewish parables, uh, if they have any connection to what's here in the gospel. We actually think the Islamic parallels probably had some knowledge of what's here in our gospel in Matthew. Uh, The Jewish parallels tell it in an interesting way. Uh, There are two of them that we know about, but one of them basically says, same situation, one guy works all day long, the other guy works the last hour of the day, and the first guy gripes and, you know, harangues and says, how can you make me equal? Because this guy worked more in one hour than you worked for the whole day. (laughs) Right, okay, I'm sorry, I like the Jewish version. (laughs) That makes total sense to me, Right? Because that's our sense of justice. That's, that makes sense that it should be like that. Right? Uh, why, is the par- why does the landowner behave the way that he does? And why is Jesus telling us this story? And the answer is, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. I mean, that's really the only answer that the parable provides. It's that, are you envious because I'm being generous? This is a situation of grave need for these people who stood all day hoping to get picked. And whatever's wrong with them, maybe they have a cough. Maybe, you know, the, the, the people say, I won't get much work out of them. They're not worth much. Maybe, you know, that they don't have all their functioning limbs in one way or another. And so they were the last picked, and he says, as an act of mercy, I'm giving them enough to sustain themselves and their family for a day. Why would that bug you? Why would, that, why would you be envious about that? God does not treat us as we deserve. 
as we deserve. He doesn't give us what we earn, but he gives us what we need. How many of you are glad that God does not give us what we deserve? Yeah, me too. Because when you're talking about God, you realize what I deserve is damnation. What I deserve is condemnation. Not from you. You're in the same boat I'm in. But from God, yes. Because he's holy, he's perfect, plus he's given me everything in my life, all my life. And so that is what I deserve from him. And he is generous to us. He is kind to us. And that's really the first part of the message. uh, Is that God is being gracious in his call of the kingdom. He is, when it comes down to what we need, God is there ready to give it to us. I heard this story uh, a while back. Um, This was actually posted last year. Um, Actually, it was posted in 2014. I just read the fine print here. St. Paul Parks and Recreation employee Megan Campbell was driving a supply van back from the city storage building. She was an employee of the city, Parks and Rec. Uh, She was driving a supply van back from the city storage building in the city's west side when she turned a corner and uh, caused serious front bumper damage to a car that was parked right there. It was her car. She turned a corner and hit her own car. Okay, that's bad. It was a 2001 Nissan Pathfinder. Um, Here's the kicker. She filed a claim against the city uh, for about $2,000 for the damage caused to her vehicle because it was caused by a public employee uh, of the city driving a city vehicle. We have a real strong sense of what's owed to us, but it only goes one way, right? When it's in my favor, I have the strongest, most ferocious sense of justice. But I don't want that sense of justice turned against me. And when we're dealing with God, the trouble is, I really want him to treat me with mercy. I really don't want him to turn justice against me. And praise be, God treats us not as we deserve, but as we need. That's really the first message of the parable. This parable in its intent sort of functions, I kind of think of this as Matthew's version of the prodigal son. Because it's all about the generosity of God in bringing in people who are late to the party and giving them a wonderful treatment anyway. That's the first message that I get out of this, but I actually think there are a couple of others as well uh, that are sort of interesting to me. If you look at what's going on in this section of Matthew, This section of Matthew starts with an interesting passage. Go back to chapter 18, the first uh, couple of verses. 
Matthew chapter 18, this, this Matthew 18 through 20, it starts with this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And from then on, he begins to tell stories. The first thing he does is bring a little child and say, if you want to be great, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like this child. What is what you're looking at it, Matthew 18. What about the child that he say you needed to be? You need to be as pure as the child? You need to be as unselfish and giving as a child? Possible Jesus could have thought children are unselfish because he didn't have any of his own. But anybody who's got children those the little beasts. They're, they're, you know, that far from being sociopaths. As far as <laughs> unselfish. Somebody shouted it out. What is it about children that he is telling them to adopt? Be humble. A child knows that he does not have the power to meet his own needs. Every day when a child gets up, a child says, I got to have help or I'm not going to make it today. If somebody doesn't provide for me today, I, I, I'm not going to make it. And that's the launching pad of, a, of three chapters that I think orbit around the theme of humility. Look at where it ends up, almost the end of chapter 20. Look at verse uh, 20 of chapter 20, not too far after our parable. The disciples are still angling for who's the greatest and, and what could I do to get greatness Verse 20 says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in my kingdom. Well, you don't know what you're asking. He's just finished talking about what's going to happen to him. What being a king means is getting killed. And, and he says, You don't know what you're asking. Uh, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Uh, and Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom it's been prepared for my father. Then when the ten heard about James and John using their mommy to ask for, you know, privileged positions, secretary of state, secretary of defense, you know, that left and right, they were indignant because they're still worried about, you know, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said this, and I will confess to you, as much as I love the Sermon on the Mount, probably Matthew 20, verses 25 and following is my favorite piece in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus called them together. They're there griping at each other about who's the best and who's going to get the best position. You know, he says, how the rulers of the pagans lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. That's not my kind of kingdom. That's not the way I want things to go. I don't want it to be like that with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I am king. I am, in fact, 
king of the entire universe. And how did I come to you? And what am I doing to exercise my kingship? I have come as a servant of the entirety of the human race to be killed so that my sacrifice can raise the human race back up to where it needs to be to get back into a relationship with God. That's why I'm the king, is because I am the greatest servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then serve. That's what he says. That's our bracket, those two passages. Be humble like a little child. If you want to be great, be a servant. And in between, we have several things which kind of orbit around this theme of humility. Uh, he, he, um, go back to chapter 18 and we'll just go through these very, very quickly. I realize time is short, but we'll just, I just want you to see these. So Matthew 18, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to have a giant weight tied to your neck and you be thrown into the sea. Leaders who think that they're great can sometimes grind down the most vulnerable people in God's kingdom in order to serve their greatness. He says, you do that, you, you should just kill yourself now before you let something like that happen. Because you're not going to like where that ends up. See that you do not despise, verse 10 says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, there are angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then you have verses 12 down through uh, verse 20. Uh, you have this really important set of instructions where Jesus talks about, this is what you do. If, if your brother is sinning, this is how you go about dealing with that. You go to them. If they won't listen to you, then you bring help back up and see if all three of you or four of you can convince them. And then you, you bring more, bring the elders of the church in. Eventually, bring the whole church in to try and, and, and reach their conscience. You don't do that if you're arrogant. You only do that if you've learned humility. And then Peter asks the question, well, how many times are we supposed to forgive? Seven times? And Jesus gives this, you know, no, 70 times seven wouldn't be enough. And, and he gives this story about comparing, you know, the, the debt that we owe, this massive debt, to the little tiny things that people have done wrong against us. Humility, humility, humility. He has a teach, starts chapter 19 with a teaching on divorce. And then he has the rich man who comes and says, what good thing do I need to do? And uh, he says, give away your stuff. Give away your stuff. What is it you're hanging on to instead of hanging on to God? Give away your stuff. And then our parable, of course, at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I encourage you to go read through Matthew chapter 18 through 20 and just read it with the lens of humility in place. Because in this section, one of the things that Matthew's doing is picking these teachings of Jesus that deal with this issue of humility. It's interesting, when the rich young man comes to him and says, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus gives this weird answer. Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one that's good. Who's he talking about? There's only one that's good. Only God is good. That's actually a key to understanding 
what Jesus understood as proper humility. As proper humility. Proper humility is not really about trying to see myself as small and worthless. It's about recognizing just how great God is. It, it, this, is, this, is, this is a mistake that a lot of us fall into, uh, to say, well, I just I can't admit, you know, if I have a talent or a gift that's been given to me, I can't admit if I'm good at this or that or the other thing, because that would be arrogant. To, to be humble means that I have to constantly say, there was a song we used to sing, we don't sing it anymore, I'm kind of glad, because it had a line, you know, uh, would God commit, uh, oh man, I can't even remember the poetry now. Anyway, it ended with, was for such a worm as I. You remember that? Ah, okay, I'm supposed to see myself as a worm? Uh, you know, Psalm says that we are made out of dust just like the worms, but God has clothed us with dignity and honors. He's given us a place uh, above all creatures. Um, God does not need to make you small for him to be great. But he does need for you to meditate on his greatness. Me getting my ego all inflated and out of bounds usually comes when I'm leaving God out of the equation. It usually comes when I'm comparing to human beings rather than thinking about God. And I say, well, compared to so-and-so, I'm actually pretty righteous. Or compared to such-and-such, I'm actually a pretty good speaker. Or compared to so-and-so, I'm actually really gifted at organization or, or whatever. As long as I can compare myself to other human beings, my ego can begin to let itself inflate. All it takes, I don't care how good you are, what gifts you've been given, what, what blessings have come into your life, all it takes is for you to begin to put the focus on God and to realize God made your mouth. God made your money. God made your brain. Every gift, every good thing about you is, is God working through you. If you focus on God that puts you in the proper place. God doesn't want you groveling in the dirt. He actually wants to make you bigger. A properly humble person is a person who fires on all cylinders, who, who is strong in God, who is mighty in God, but who doesn't think it's them that give the credit to God. I don't become humble by trying to think of myself as smaller but by realizing that God is bigger. And that's what our parable is about. The parable of the workers. The, the, the workers who worked all through the day, they were focused on themselves and they were comparing themselves to the workers who worked one hour. And they said, I must be greater. I need to be treated as greater. Because compared to them, look at the work I did. I did 12 times as much work as they did. And Jesus invites us to say, in economics, that's fine, that's the way you should operate, but when we're talking about the grace of God, that, that calculation just fails. It just doesn't work at all. 
And instead, I need to recognize that I have been incredibly blessed at all to be included with God and to be allowed to work for God and to be allowed to to exercise gifts that God has given to me. I need to recognize that God is bigger. That's actually been a slogan that's been in my head this last year a lot. God is bigger. People ask me, bigger than what? What do you got? (laughs) He's bigger than that. Uh, and, and, And I'm serious about this. This has become a regular part of my own meditation life is to meditate on just how incredible our God is. Because it... I don't have to grovel in the dirt. I just recognize if anything good comes out of what I do or what our church does, it's because of God flowing through us. That's what's going on. God is bigger. There's another lesson here that I want us to look at as well. If you had a camera filming our parable tonight. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you had a camera filming it, who would always be in the shot? Who's all, in every scene of the parable, who's always there? It's, this parable is told From the perspective of the owner. The owner is in every shot. He's in every scene. This is about the owner. And it's a parable that's using a human condition to reflect up to what God is like. This is a parable about the character of, the nature of God, and the nature of our relationship to God. God is this incredible giving God who who wants to make me better and he gives me gifts in order to lift me up to turn me into the thing that he created me to be all along. That's that's what the parable is about. The giant in fifth grade was Gene Obert. I really wanted to be on Gene Obert's team. Gene Obert. I mean, you know, He wasn't shaving in fifth. He was shaving by sixth grade, though. You know, he's just one of those kids. I actually saw him at our 40th reunion. He actually never grew any taller than he was in sixth grade. I mean, that was was puberty for him. He hit it. He was done. But he was huge. He was just this Hulk uh, for all of us in sixth grade. I wanted to be picked by him. Usually wasn't. One time I was. It was great. Tug of war. We had a tug of war in P.E., and I got picked to be on Gene Obert's team. He was the anchor, obviously. And uh, I was irrelevant. I was, I was in the front. Uh, but it was the most amazing thing to be on Gene Obert's team. Because I put my scrawny little arms around that rope. I pulled with all my might. And guess what? I saw six people on the other team. From my perspective, it looked like I was pulling them all. (laughs) Greatest moment of my fifth grade life, at least in sports. I didn't have very many, so it's not a... (laughs) 
it's not tough to be the greatest. Um, what matters most is not the work you do, but who chooses you to do it. We'd like to think that our contributions are the key issue, and if it weren't for us, this whole place would just fall apart. And, you know, from human point of view, sometimes that's actually true. But what matters is, have you been chosen by God? Because if you are working for God, the power starts to flow, and amazing things start to happen. We've imagined this situation of the workers in the vineyard. Who got picked the very first hour? What kind of people? Strong, young, just so full of energies. Oh man, I'm going to get a ton of work out of that guy. That's going to be great. Who got picked the ninth hour? Still, you know, strong, healthy looking. Noon? You know, it's getting a little thinner. It's getting a little thinner. Maybe bags under their eyes. Uh, Three o'clock in the afternoon, pickings are getting thin. Who is still left at five? Everybody's come. Who's still left? Now switch. What does it feel like to be those people that are still in the marketplace at five? A lot of scholars have actually debated. Who do the people that are picked at five in the afternoon, who do they represent? We assume, you know, that the original workers kind of represent the Pharisees or the leaders of the Jews or something like that. Who do the workers at five in the evening represent? Yeah. I think they do represent me and you. They represent people. Here's what they represent. They represent people who do not expect to be chosen. Some people say, well, it's the Gentiles. And, and that's a good bet. Or it's the sinners that have been kicked out of the synagogue. And that's a good bet. But there are a thousand reasons why you don't expect for God to choose you. There are a thousand. Way more than that. Why? You know, what is it in my past? What's, what have I done? What's been done to me? What paths have I gone down? What habits have I fallen into that mean God's never really going to pick me? God's never really going to choose me. And the parable of the vineyard is Matthew's parable that says it's not about what you do. It is about the election of God. Of God coming, seeing you in your need and saying, you, I want you. I want you to come work for me. What an incredible thing that the God of heaven who does not need us at all, 
you know, spoke universe into existence. If he wants to pick a few grapes, he just says, grapes picked, they're picked. Why does he want us to help him? I don't know. It's kind of a mystery, but he does. And he says, you, you, I've chosen you, you, you. I want you. There is no one who has messed up their life so badly. There is no one who has been done so dirty to. There is no one who has gone so far away from God that God is not standing there at five in the afternoon saying, I want you. I want you. I want you. Thank you.